Islamic suicide bombers killed 250 Christians in three churches on Easter Sunday this year in Sri Lanka. As awful as that is, it's only the tip of the iceberg. The US Commission on International Religious Freedom in its annual report says that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world and the growth of that persecution is accelerating. And it's not just Islamic persecution, Uh, there's communist and dictatorial governments as well. North Korea is the most oppressive and restrictive country in the world for Christians. China has jumped from number 47 to number 27, uh, 41 to 27 in the last year. Open Doors estimates that 245 million Christians live in areas of extreme or high persecution. We hear those statistics and we weep, don't we? And we pray, how long, O Lord? There's violence and injustice. We pray and we pray and you don't say, what's going on? It's a prayer God's people have prayed for thousands of years, including the prophet Habakkuk. To some people, a prayer that questions God like this seems rude and disbelieving, but God in his mercy and his condescension has given us this little book of Habakkuk to comfort, to teach us in our situations with our questions. It's an unusual style for a prophetic book because Habakkuk never actually prophesies to anybody. (laughs) It's more like a few pages from his personal prayer diary than a book of prophecy. He asks questions of God and God replies to him. So, there in verse 1 we see it's an oracle that Habakkuk received. An oracle is a pronouncement, a message that God gave Habakkuk for those people who read it. That's us, to answer our questions. And the fact that it's in our Bibles means that God is giving us permission to ask questions, like Habakkuk. Permission to express our disappointment. God is big enough to cope. And that's really what Habakkuk teaches. God is big. There's a nice simple sentence for you. God is big. He may not give us all the answers we want, but what he does give us is what we need, a big picture of who God is and what he's doing. Well, the first section begins in verse 2 and Habakkuk's first question, why don't you act? He's praying to God. How long must I call for help and you don't listen? I cry out violence, but you don't say. And then he goes on to describe the situation around him. He's living in Judah. It's about 6.30 BC. There's evil inside the country and there's evil outside. Uh, Bible scholars debate about whether Habakkuk is thinking about Judah inside or Assyria, who's the invading country outside. If it's Judah, then verse 3, he describes injustice. The innocent are punished, the guilty walk free. It's not fair. And there's destruction and violence. There's riots, strife and conflict. 
Wherever he looks, there are fights and arguments and disputes. Everyone's looking after themselves. And in verse 4, the law, well, that's powerless to stop it. There are bribes, special deals. Justice is paralysed. Can't do anything. And even if there is someone trying to do the right thing, as soon as, as, soon as he begins, he, he's surrounded by the wicked. He's attacked from every side. Other people think maybe Habakkuk is describing the Assyrian invaders who are threatening on the borders. So verse 4 says, the wicked hem in the righteous. They surround them so there's no way out. So that could be an invading army. But whether it's Judah or Assyria, the fact that there are two wicked nations, it's terrible, isn't it? It just makes Habakkuk's question even more real. Evil is everywhere. It's here, it's there. Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he save? If it's Assyria, why doesn't he bring down that evil country? And if it's Israel, the question is, why won't he send revival? Why won't he change people? Why won't he reform things? After all, God is is just and righteous. How can he see and do nothing? Of course, it's a question that's been asked in different ways for thousands of years. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why doesn't God do something? Why did my wife die? Why was my child born disabled? Where is God when life hurts? Where is God in genocide, war, natural disaster? It's a question people have tried to answer in different ways. For example, some of you may know about Hinduism. Hinduism talks about karma. All the actions of the past are balanced out by what you're, what's happening in the, in the present. Evil happens in the present because someone deserves it. And if it seems like they don't deserve it because they're a good person, then the simple answer is they must have done something bad in a previous life. Everything comes back. Now, of course, there's plenty of Westerners, plenty of Australians who think pretty much like that. They're convinced when something bad happens to them that God is punishing them if they believe in God or else if they don't believe in God they say, well, the universe is just balancing things out of paying me back for something I've done wrong. That's that's just karma. We've got an inbuilt sense of justice, don't we? We want to see justice happen. Buddhism, many of you know about Buddhism, I guess. Maybe you could be teaching me. But Buddhism gives a very different answer. Buddhism teaches that suffering only exists because it's connected to our desire for things. The pain of losing a loved one, well that's only a pain because we actually desire the loved one. The pain of poverty and sickness, well that's just because you desire comfort and food. And and so... In Buddhism, the the key to dealing with suffering is to deny your desires. If you can cut off your desires, if you don't want anything, then nothing can hurt you. 
You're set free from being hurt. The goal of Buddhism is to reach nirvana, which is not really paradise, it's non-existence. Nirvana is being able to cut yourself off from everything, the desire for anything. It's to separate from good and bad things. Switch yourself off from the desires in this world so nothing can hurt you. That sounds fine in theory, but I don't know where happiness comes from in Buddhism. I don't know, I visited Thailand and they look like the happiest people I've ever seen, really, which is funny. I don't think they're very consistent Buddhists sometimes, really. If there's no real God in Buddhism and you can't find it in earthly things, I don't know where happiness comes from. And I'm not sure how it works telling a little boy whose father has just died that the solution to his pain is just to harden himself against the love he feels for his father, against loneliness, against anger and frustration. Just convince himself those feelings are not real. That's the key to dealing with suffering. That's what Buddhism says. And there's Islam. For Islam, the key is to submit to the will of Allah. Allah's will is absolutely determined. Any suffering is the direct result of Allah. Now, there's a certain comfort in that. You can't do much about it. Even if the reason he causes it are not known, you sort of accept it, I guess. Because to question it is actually blasphemous. So this sort of chapter from Habakkuk 1 would be a a terrible thing for uh, a Muslim to, to be doing. To question is not to submit And so it misses the attractive simplicity of Islam. And then there's the terrible rationalism of atheism which basically says there are no reasons why you're suffering. It's just bad luck. Your suffering, it has no purpose. It has no cause. There is no karma. There's no justice. There's no higher being who's directing the events of your life. It's completely random. Now, isn't that heartbreaking? You lose a child and the atheist says, oh well, bad luck, that's terrible, I I cry with you, but there's no comfort whatever in that. It's funny that suffering drives people to atheism like that. What about the various Christian responses? Some of them are more biblical than others, but there are two basic assumptions, two pillars uh, that we rest on. And one is that God is all-loving and the other is that God is all-powerful. And some people explain suffering by saying that God is all-loving but he's not quite all-powerful. And they'll say he wants to, he really, really wants to end all your suffering but there's something stopping him. He's not big enough, he's not powerful enough, he's tricked, he's not wise enough, he's willing but he's not able. That's not the Bible. The Bible says that God is the sovereign creator, he's king 
He made everything. He governs everything. Other people want to say that God is all-powerful, they rest on that, but he's not loving. They're not sure he's loving. He could stop the suffering if he wants to, but he just chooses not to. Either because he's not interested, he's the absent watchmaker. He made the world, wound it up, put it down and then went somewhere else. Some people think God's like that. Or else they think he's fickle and spiteful like the Greek gods or the Roman gods and that we're just ants and God's got a magnifying glass and he's just burning us up just for for his amusement. In other words, he's able but he's not willing. Now neither of those two positions reflect the Bible. God is all powerful and he's all loving. He's actively involved in his creation. And so he sees the suffering but he also has loving reasons for permitting it. And that's where Habakkuk is. He's asking, how can a just, powerful, loving, involved God see all the injustice and just let it happen? And so we come to God's answer in verse 5. Or maybe God's reply, since he doesn't actually give any solutions. If anything, he just asks more questions. Habakkuk wants to know why God hasn't acted. Well, God is going to act. Okay, all right. Verse 5, look at the nations and watch, be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. God is not a detached, uninvolved watchmaker who winds it up and leaves the world on its own. He sees and he's going to act. I'm going to do something. Verse 6, I'm raising up. And just to confirm that it's actually God who's doing it, he's going to do something extraordinary something that's outside human and earthly ways of doing things. He's going to raise up Babylon. You see, at this stage, Babylon was just a minor nation with no power really. It was about the same level as Judah. Assyria was the superpower. They were the playground bully. But within one generation, Babylon would rise up or God would raise them up, more accurately. In 614 BC they would defeat the capital city of Assyria, called Assyria, and then Nineveh in 612, and then Haran in 610, and finally they'd defeat the combined armies of Egypt and Assyria at Carchemish in 605. It was unbelievable, unless it was God who'd raised them. But it was also extraordinary, not just because Babylon was small, but because of their fearsome reputation. They were fierce. They were a law to themselves. They were violent, completely without compassion. There was nothing noble or honourable about their tactics. They were brutal and proud. How could God use a tool like that? How could God bring judgement against his people Israel using that nation? Habakkuk's amazed. 
He prayed for God to reform, to bring repentance to Judah. He'd wanted deliverance from Assyria. But God's plan was something else again. It was to use a nation even more wicked than Judah was, at least as bad as Assyria. Sometimes we pray for one thing, but God answers our prayer with something completely different. God loves us when we bring our requests to him, but I wonder sometimes whether we're not better off just to to bring the situation to God and then just pray that his will would be done. Especially if we don't know what to pray for. Uh, I read a friend's Facebook post a while ago. Naomi visited uh, another church and she met a woman and this is what she wrote on her Facebook post. I met a gorgeous 80-year-old woman this week. She told me that she prays at night when she can't sleep. She says she doesn't sleep very much, so she prays a lot. Then she said that she doesn't really know what to pray, so she goes through all the things on her mind and says, Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way. Then she looked at me and apologised. It's not a very good prayer, I guess. I said, it's one of the best prayers I've ever heard. And it is, isn't it? That's letting God be king. Lord, have your way. Let him decide what to do. We pray and that shows that we trust him and we leave the solution to him. I guess for Habakkuk though, what God needed to do was obvious to him. He needed to deliver the innocent from the evil. His problem was how God's righteous character went with the action of using wicked Babylon. And that's the point of Habakkuk's reply from verse 12. Habakkuk's question, God's answer, Habakkuk's second reply from verse 12. And then look at what he says in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You might be thinking about the present situation with Assyria swallowing up Israel or maybe he's looking ahead to the future wickedness that Babylon is going to do. But either way, he can't put together God's character with his action. His eyes are too pure to look at evil and yet here he is tolerating wrong just watching while evil flourishes. But he's doing more than just tolerating. Verse 6, God says he's raising up evil. He may be just sitting back while Assyria was doing its worst, but here he says he's going to be actively involved in raising up Babylon. Now, of course, that's not an isolated incident not an unusual way for God to deal with the world. God is actually always involved in politics. He raised up Pharaoh for his purposes. Israel was quietly growing into a nation in Egypt. Then God sent Moses to Pharaoh with a message. Exodus 9, let my people go. And then God says to Pharaoh through Moses, 
But I raised you, Pharaoh, up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power. He raised up Pharaoh. And later when God had brought Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, God actually says he raises up Assyria to punish Israel. Jeremiah chapter 5. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you. And then he goes on to describe Assyria and how awful they are. He's raised up Assyria. And now in Habakkuk's time, he's raising up Babylon to bring down Assyria. And so because God is still the king of this world, we can say he's raising up Islamic State in Iraq. How can we say that? Well, because Islamic State is, is there. He's raised up North Korea and Pakistan and China and all the other nations who are bent on destroying God's people. And it's got to make us cry, doesn't it, with Habakkuk? Why? How can a just God look on while injustice reigns? Not only look on, how can he raise up these sorts of uh, nations? The Westminster Confession puts it very well. It's a summary of all the things the Presbyterian Church believes. It brings all the Bible verses together and in chapter 3 it says this about how God works in the world. God has freely and unchangeably planned from all eternity everything that comes to pass. But he does it in such a way that he's not the author of sin. And he doesn't force people to do what they don't want to do. Now God is king, the Bible says, he plans everything, but he's also the judge who holds people to account for their choices. Everything we do is both free and predetermined by God. Now, I can't explain that to you. I can't explain how those two things fit together any more than the Westminster Confession does and I don't think the Bible does either. It just says they're both true. Whether we can explain them with our heads or not. Of course, the greatest example of this uh, is the death of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Jesus has risen, he's gone back to heaven and the new Christians are meditating on Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the, the writer says, why do the nations rage against God? Why do they plot in vain? It's all for nothing. And they apply it to King Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Romans and the Jewish leaders. They all freely chose to attack Jesus and put him to death. And then in verse 28 of Acts 4, they say, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God plans everything humans freely choose. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching at Pentecost after Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit's just come down and he describes the death and resurrection of Jesus this way. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge 
and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Now, I can't explain how those two things go together. God is king, he planned it all, but at the same time, they chose their own wicked actions. And while Habakkuk struggles to see God's reasons and why we might struggle to see what's good about our suffering or what can be good about Christians being martyred in Sri Lanka, at least in this historical event, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's reasons are clear. Peter continues, Acts chapter 2, verse 24, but, <laughs> but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. That's why God planned it that way, so that everyone might repent and receive God's Holy Spirit, that they might bow in submission to the death-conquering King Jesus. God's purpose in Jesus' suffering, God's purpose in wicked men choosing to put him to death was so that God might be glorified when Jesus was raised. That's actually the end reason, the final reason why God does anything. Everything happens according to Ephesians 1 verse 10. God says, Ephesians 1.10 says that the mystery of God's will is to bring everything together under the rule of Jesus. Everything happens so that people might come together under the rule of Jesus. And so we may not be able to see the particular reasons of our suffering, what's God doing there, but we can trust that God is at work and that his, his final goal is to bring everything, you, me, under Jesus' reign. And so somehow your suffering has a part to play in that, into bringing people to honour Jesus. We may not be able to see it yet, we may not be able to understand it, but Habakkuk says, just trust God anyway. And that's where Habakkuk's second reply finishes. Unfortunately, I didn't uh, ask Marjorie to include chapter 2, verse 1 in this reading, which would have been really good, but the big number 2 sort of stops uh, before we get to it. Uh, Habakkuk is willing to live with the uncertainty. He's willing to live with the uncertainty. He's still asking questions, but he doesn't have to understand everything to keep trusting God. Habakkuk finishes, I'll wait in faith. Chapter 2 verse 1 says this, I will stand at my watch and station myself at the ramparts, that's sort of on the battle wall, watching over the top of the, the wall. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Might that be us? Live with the uncertainties. Be free to ask with Habakkuk why, how long, but may we finish up where Naomi's old friend was. When we don't know what to pray, she just say, Lord, have your way. 
Lord, have your way. And when we struggle to see any good in our situation, in our suffering, in our persecution, let's remember that we get to see things so much more clearly than Habakkuk could because we live on this side of the cross. Because the cross reminds us that God does work good from evil. He does love us. He will work out his best in our lives. Sure, make a list of all the suffering that you're experiencing, all the things that you've prayed for God to fix. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword. Does that list sound familiar? It's from Romans 8 in case you're wondering. List all of those things. Ask God to deliver you. But then right underneath that list, make sure you write Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he he not also, along with him, along with his son, graciously give us all things? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, Please help us in the midst of the difficult situations that we endure to keep trusting you to look to Jesus that he might be honoured. Amen.